A round of applause for Katie Vegan, please, who's joining us here. So, um, Katie, I have an introduction here for Katie, which is what, what I think one of the fav- one of my favourite to, to read. Um, Katie uh, grew up and was born and brought up in Morecambe, oh, yeah. um, which 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 I know all too well. Um, and aside from being one of the very few people in the world to be expelled from primary school, which I think is an interesting crime, uh, she went to stage school in Surrey with Posh Spice. I, I certainly did. She was in my all, class. All of, which, all of which is true. Um, so uh, as well as, again, in, in the same way that Eleanor has another career um, in, in television, um, Katie has a career in journalism and has been at Marica for a very long time. This is your third this novel? This is my third novel, yeah. Third novel. Yeah. Um, this is the first time that she's read from it, which is very exciting. Well, the first time I've read, so be nice. Yeah, <laughs> very exciting, very exciting. So I'm just going to let you go. Okay, bit. right. So, um, yeah, I've always wanted to write a book about friendship. Um, uh, I sort of uh, have never been very good at romance, I suppose. So friendship's always been where I, I think I've kind of um, excelled myself. And I've always had lots of good friends. Um, and How We Met is about a group of friends. Um, Mia, Fraser, Anna, Norm and Melody. And they all met at Lancaster University. Um, and uh, there was also Liv, but Liv, uh, Liv died two years previously to the book opening. She, it was a very sort of needless, unnecessary, sudden death. They all went on holiday to Ibiza and she fell off a balcony. Um, and since then, they've all been sort of struggling. They're all kind of like slightly kind of frayed. She was sort of a linchpin that kept them together. Um, but every uh, year on the anniversary of her, what would have been her birthday, they meet up in um, the Merchants, which Damien knows well as a pub in Lancaster. Uh, just I used to, to live just around the corner from it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I spent a lot of time in there. Um, they meet in the Merchants to, to raise a glass to live and remember her. And um, the uh, bit I'm going to read from is uh, the second year that they meet, so it would have been her 29th birthday. And um, they're all kind of in a bit of a mess in their life, really. Uh, Mia is a single mum to Billy. Um, since Liv died, she had a baby, Billy. And her partner, um, Eduardo, uh, is a bit of a tosser, really. He, he, left, <laughs> he, he left her when she was 36 weeks pregnant, and she's kind of struggling. Um, and then uh, and she has to kind of like take herself to the pub and have a kind of quick half a cider occasionally because she finds it all too much. Um, and Fraser, uh, Fraser is just kind of wading through grief, really, and... Um, the night before this meeting, uh, he's slept with a barmaid and he's not feeling very good about himself because it's obviously the anniversary um, of Liv's um, uh, birthday. Uh, and also Fraser was her boyfriend. So Mia was her best friend. Fraser was her boyfriend. Um, Melody and Norm, who were a couple, kind of are sort of arguing and basically deciding that they probably got married too young. It's all going to go wrong. And then Anna is kind of... Um, she's the floozy of the group and she, she kind of sort of t- seems to... Um, try and drown her grief in other people's beds. So this is the point that they <laughs> all meet in the merchant's pub. Okay. Shameful laughs of familiarity. There. <laughs> okay. Um, Mia walked into the merchant's with Billy at Gone 8. For some reason, she was thinking of the film Look Who's Talking and winced as she imagined what her son must be thinking now. The pub, twice in one day, mother, and now for the evening. Classy. And wished so much she could explain without sounding embittered and abandoned. This is what Mia most resented about her whole situation. The opportunities it held for mental behaviour. Screaming in the middle of the street at Eduardo, slamming phones down, revenge plots and murderous thoughts. She spent far too much time these days feeling like a character from Coronation Street. (laughs) Of course it pissed her off whenever Eduardo let her down, but tonight felt especially cruel. Although she was not one to drag out self-pity too long, she couldn't help but feel sorry for herself as she pushed Billy past the cosy candlelit arches looking for her friends. 
This was one night, one night out of the whole year for remembering her best friend whom she couldn't even have any, who she, who she didn't even have anymore. And he thought the customers of Bella Italia needed him more than she did. And she'd had a baby with this man. She had considered cancelling. There was nobody else she could call to look after Billy after all, since Melody was coming too. But she was too angry, too sad, too at risk of binge drinking alone if she stayed in. And anyway, she wanted to come. She had to come. Surely Bruce, the landlord, would relax the rules on the baby front just this once. But then perhaps not. Not after last year's reunion, which had been grim. Melody and Anna had drunk far too much, got far too maudlin, and ended up literally rocking, clinging on to each other in a sentimental, sobbing wreck, people openly gawping at them, and Mia had found herself actually cringing at her own her friend's display of grief. Norm had been unusually quiet, said barely a word, in fact, and spent the entire night at the jukebox putting Green Day on a loop. He and Livs were bonded in their mutual love of Green Day. Until he got shouted out to literally, ''Fucking change the record!'' by some hard-nut local who Fraser, also drunk, then decided to punch, resulting in two broken fingers and them all getting chucked out. Through all of this, of course, Mia was four months pregnant with Billy and sober. She'd tried to reason with them that perhaps that second round of Sambucas was not the best idea, that Fraser had had enough to drink, that quite possibly Liv wouldn't have wanted him to take a swing at a bloke twice his size on her behalf, but they wouldn't listen. Of course they wouldn't listen and were steaming, and Mia had gone home feeling utterly deflated, sure that two broken fingers and a police caution was not how her best friend would have wanted her birthday to be marked. Also, perhaps due to being pregnant, she felt blocked. She couldn't let her grief run right like the rest of them. Everything was too much, life event overload, and even though everyone else had piled back to Melody and Norm, she'd gone home to Eduardo, who was still with her at this point, preferring to wait until she was 36 weeks pregnant to tell her this whole baby thing wasn't really going to work for him, and lay in bed staring into the dark. But tonight was a whole year later, wasn't it? Their grief was, le- was less raw. It would be more of a celebration, a celebration of her life, a chance to reminisce about the good times, so many good times, and a chance to get together. Then she located Melody and Norm at the end of the final tunnel, clearly already in the throes of a row, and her heart sank. Melody turned dramatically when she saw Mia, who thought if she were turning into a character from Coronation Street, then her good friend Melody Burgess was fast becoming one from Ali McBeal, all power-dressing and courtroom drama. Nobody's here yet, she said breathily with what Mia couldn't help but feel was a slight stage flick of her hair. Twenty past eight and not a peep out of anyone. Well, I'm here, said Mia brightly. Right, yeah, I suppose so. And, um, Billy, said Melody, somewhat begrudgingly, clocking the buggy as if Mia had a choice in the matter. Mia gritted her teeth. Norm groaned. I've told her to take a chill pill, he said. I've told her that this is about Olivia. Remember? He fired daggers at Melody and Mia found herself thinking, not for the first time in the last year, What happened to my friends, jolly old Norman Melody, inseparable, bonded for years in their love of cider and singing appalling indie anthems on karaoke? Melody folded her arms indignantly. Well, I'm disgusted, frankly. I mean, Anna's no surprise, but Fraser, Liv was his girlfriend, remember? I think we do, said Mia, in a way that was supposed to be helpful and calm her down, but didn't. So why the fuck isn't he here, then? No phone call, no text, nada. Okay, now we we flip to um, Fraser's point of view. He's on a taxi on the way there from London. Um, do you mind putting your foot down, mate? Fraser was sitting in the back of a black cab travelling from Preston to Lancaster, jiggling his legs up and down, which he always did when he was nervous. Honestly, what was wrong with these provincial types? No sense of urgency. Liv was doing this, he thought. She knew all about his overactive conscience and she was having a laugh. He imagined her looking down at him now, sweating and toxic and racked with guilt and thinking, you muppet, Fraser. All this guilt for a fumble with a barmaid? Deep down, of course, so deep he couldn't quite bring himself to admit it. Fraser knew this tardiness and stress was entirely of his own making. In fact, the last 24 hours were entirely of his own making. He was supposed to have caught the four o'clock from Euston, which would have got him to Lancaster and the merchants in plenty of time. But because he was far too nice and far too hungover to put up a fight, he'd somehow become embroiled in a tarot reading from Karen. Karen's the barmaid that he slept with. 
which overran. He wasn't really sure how long the average tarot reading was, but felt sure an hour and a half was overrunning. <laughs> he missed the four o'clock, so I had to catch the five o'clock, and only realised that it was on the when he was on the train that it didn't go further than Preston. He now felt wretched, having thrown up in the train toilets and fielded three texts from Karen. Are you on the train yet? How's the hangover? He'd finally broken when she told him what she was having for tea and switched off his phone. <laughs> Still, at least in the end, he told her a truth. He'd been nothing but a gent. There was that. He'd said, unfortunately... You give these people... Oh, unfortunately, I can't hang out all day because I'm going to a reunion with my university mates. We do it every year. All true, nothing but the truth. But even that had backfired when Karen had propped herself up on her elbow, shaken her head slowly and given him that look, the look of love, <laughs> and said, do you know what? That doesn't surprise me one little bit. I can tell that Fraser Morgan is the sort of person who, once he's your friend, is a friend for life. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> So this is Ollie. Ollie, these are my friends. Fraser practically skidded into the merchants, locating his mates in the last arch, just as Anna was introducing some new boyfriend, fuck buddy, future husband. It was hard to know what to expect where Spanner was concerned. Ollie thought Fraser, standing in the doorway of the arch. They're always called Ollie, and I bet he works in the media and lives in Gladbrook Grove. It took him another few seconds to register the reality of the situation. Anna had brought some idiot in red skinny jeans, no doubt, la no doubt last night's conquest, a bloke new on new from Adam, to Liv's birthday reunion... He felt a sudden overwhelming blackness of mood that crashed down on him like a ton of rock, invol involving anger on Liv's behalf, fury at his friend's audacity, mixed with a horrible, horrible wave of self-loathing, an ugly sense of his own double standards at the reality of what he'd done, as the reality of what he'd done last night hit him. What Anna had done seemed suddenly outrageous, and yet what, was what he'd done actually any better? And these were his friends, his best and oldest friends. They'd just know. Nobody said hello to Wally, who had the most unfortunate hairstyle Fraser had ever seen, dyed a reddish pink and pulled forward around his face like a giant crab claw had him in a headlock. <laughs> right, uh, wicked. Well, I'll just go to the bar then, he said eventually, to nobody in particular. Anna stroked his arm as if he was a cat. Can I have a vodka and lime, please? Proper lime juice, not lime cordial, she added, lowering her lashes at him. And Ollie nodded, locking eyes for far longer than was natural or necessary. Fucking appropriate, come to think of it, thought Fraser. Who did he think he was, playing out his post-coital dance here? And then he went to the bar. So you got here then. Fraser was still boring a hole in Ollie's back when he realised, back inside the arch, that Melody was talking to him. A call would have been appreciated, Fraser. We've been worried sick. Ha! That was rich. What about Anna? Why was nobody angry with Anna, who was busy removing her various bags? Anna always seemed to be carrying an assortment of bags since her life was one big impromptu sleepover. Like nothing had happened. Anna had always been flaky and selfish, and Fraser had always forgiven her. Not least because Liv had always said, I understand her, Fraser. She's a massive insecurity inside. Also, Anna compensated by being gutsy and fearless. She appealed to Fraser's passionate side. Anna came from a socially aspiring lower-middle-class family who had, who had as good as bankrupted themselves to send her to private school. She and Fraser would have awesome heated debates, i.e. blazing slangy matches in the kitchen of Five South Road, where she would accuse him of being an inverted snob, and he would accuse her of being a shameless social climber with a chip on her shoulder. They disagreed on many things. Fraser incensed her with his tendency to always play devil's advocate. But Fraser loved her passion, how she wasn't remotely interested in life's subtle emotions. It was all pain and death and love and torture with Anna. But these days, she seemed to be using Liv's death as an excuse to be even more flaky, and Fraser wasn't having it. He felt rage rise within him. Um, Anna, he rubbed his, heart, his head hard, hard as if this would somehow get rid of it. Can I have a word with you? Like, outside, in private, please? Anna froze. Everyone was staring to their drinks. Why? She said defensively. Why? Fucking hell, Anna. If you don't know why, then there's something wrong with you. Oh, look, we'll just leave, Anna snapped, standing up and gathering her stuff. Jesus Christ, if I'd thought this was going to be such a big deal. If I'd thought... Anna, Melody broke the silence. How can you say that? Of course this is a big deal. This is Liv's birthday. 
Anna let out an incredulous little gasp. Oh, my God, you're at it too. What is this, gang up on Anna night? You lot have such double standards. He was 45 minutes late. Anna was standing up now, pointing at Fraser. Later than me, and Liv was his girlfriend. She does have a point, Fraser said, Melody grimacing, but Fraser didn't want to know about logic or who had a point. He was just angry, really fucking angry, and he didn't know why, but it was taking over him, as if he was being engulfed by a fireball. The words came out in a torrent before he could help himself. God, you're selfish. Anna stood there, open-mouthed, as he laid into her. You're like a fucking teenager. You want so much back, and yet you, you, you just do what you want, when you want, bring who you want, twats in red jeans, some bloke you probably shagged last night. He was on a roll now, and he didn't care. No respect for Liv or for me. Out of the corner of his eye, Fraser clocked Norm, staring at him, and looked away. Fraser, come on. It was only when he heard her voice, alarmed but still, stop, still soft, that Fraser clocked that Mia was with Billy. Why was she with Billy? Oh, he knew why she was with Billy. Eduardo, such a useless pile of shit. Why she never got together with him was beyond him. Then Mia got up. Billy was crying now and went over to him, putting her arm around him as if trying to soothe him. Anna exploded. Oh, that's nice, that is. You just take sides, Mia. Go on, you always look after him, don't you? Have you noticed that? Anna, I don't. Mia tried to defend herself, but Anna cut her dead. It's not all about you, you know, Fraser. I know Liv was your girlfriend, but she was our friend too. We all miss her. She wouldn't have given a shit if I'd wanted to bring a friend along. Or someone I shagged last night, for that matter. She was shouting now, and Billy was crying harder. I'm sure she would have liked Ollie, actually. Ollie had come back from the bar now, and Fraser could feel him looming behind him. She liked new people, unlike some people I know, some very angry and tormented people. She carried on, and all hell broke loose. Anna was shouting at Fraser, Melody joined in, and Fraser was shouting back. Then Mia was arguing with the landlord, who said she couldn't bring a baby in a pub after seven, to which she shouted, Do you think I would, unless I had to? Do you not remember last year? Then ate her words when a look of realisation crossed Bruce's face at last year's, as last year's escapade came flooding, flooding back. In the middle of all this, Fraser had a flash of lucidity, something he found very uncomfortable when he got like this, which was getting more, not less often, because he knew deep down that they'd done it again. He'd done it again. He thought of live, Jesus wept you lot, get a grip, and felt a trickle of shame run down his spine. It was Norm who finally snapped and got them all to shut up, including Billy. Look, people, he slammed his pint down, a good deal of which splashed all over his shirt. Don't you think this is pretty lame? He shifted on his feet, looking uncomfortable. Voice of authority and reason was not a natural role for Norm, but circumstances called for it. I mean, if Liz could see us, you know, if she was looking down on us now on her 29th birthday, in case you've all forgotten, if she had her feet up watching Countdown, having one of her cheeky tea and Maria coffees and maybe a 20 quid fag, there was a murmur of laughter and recognition from the group. Do you think she'd be impressed? Do you reckon she'd be like, awesome, look at my mate, aren't they just the best? I don't think so, somehow. Fraser looked at his friend and felt a bream of pride in his chest. Norm must think I'm a dick, he thought. I am a dick. Norm had been so good to him in that text, going out of his way to make Fraser, Fraser feel better, and then he'd still let the side down, rocked up an hour late, hung over, taking his guilt out on everyone, who really hated himself sometimes. Look, said Norm eventually. Everyone was shuffling and staring at the ground as if they were being told off by the headmaster. I found this. He reached inside his pocket and pulled out a tatty piece of A4. It's a list that Liv wrote. Things to do before I'm 30. I thought it might be nice for us all to read it later, pass it around and raise a drink to her, but since everyone's being idiots now... There was a sheepish mumble of apology from the crowd. Fraser was staring at the piece of paper in his friend's hand. Norm looked at him, realisation crossing his face. Oh, totally honest, innocent, mate. Found it in the pocket of my old parka that Liv must have borrowed. Fraser smiled and waved his hand away. He didn't care where he got it from. He had a list, a list with Liv's handwriting on. Can I have that, he said, stepping forward. And Norm handed him the piece of paper. (laughs) 
uh, how much did you not want to be that guy Ollie when he came into the bar? It's just like, hi everybody, you're all having a massive fight. That's great. I feel really comfortable. Um, so the piece of paper contains a list, yeah. um, which which is kind of the structure for the book because yeah. the, the group of friends use this as a way of connecting um, yes. with the friend that they've lost. Yeah. Um, but the, but the list also has kind of pressure as yeah, well, doesn't it? It ruins things for them. I mean. They set out to complete this list of things she wanted to do before she's 30, which has kind of, you know, um, typical things like go to Vegas, to silly, silly strange things like make, learn how to make a Roman blind. And they all... Um, <laughs> and also how to make, make a home porn movie. Make a home porn movie, yeah. yeah. And they all divvy up the list and, um, and uh, agree that they're going to, going to complete it in time for her 30th birthday in a year's time. Um, but what they actually find is that, you know... It, by doing the list, it kind of causes frictions and, um, you know, it kind of, it, it uh, hones in on the kind of fault lines in their friendships and so on and um, their secrets, you know, come out. Um, and I guess it's kind of what I wanted to say was that, you know, if Liv had lived, if Liv had lived, um, you know, <laughs> she wouldn't probably be interested in going to Vegas or, you know, going to Venice. She would have been kind of getting on with the business of living and she would have been, you know, trying to live better and trying to live well and getting on with having relationships, children, a life. But, the, I mean, the list is a very interesting device. But, I mean, Lev, Lev is, um, she's, she's absent from the book in a lot of the ways that Sally is absent from Eleanor's book. I mean, it's, it's again, it's this kind of ghost. And, yeah. and I think, do you even mention Rebecca somewhere, somewhere in the book? There's Maybe. some kind of reference still. Yeah. But it's that kind of, yes. the idea of a presence. Yes. Um, that they're all kind of haunted by in different yeah. ways. Yeah, and I was interested in this idea that um, you sort of, uh, maybe if, especially if you lose someone when you're young, put them on a kind of pedestal, you know, they're this kind of amazing, glorious person. Um, but actually, you know, Liv has a secret of her own, and also she... She does, and I know what it is. You don't know what it is. <laughs> and yet. she's not perfect by, by any means. And, and also, you know, I guess they realise that... Um, I guess they realise that... Um, what was kind of, you know, we often think that the, the person that we meet and fall in love with when we're young is, is kind of the one and it's going to last forever and it means everything and it's so intense. But, you know, uh, Fraser and Liv were together and then she died. But I think they realised that life goes on and actually, even if she'd have lived, perhaps they wouldn't have ended up together anyway. Well, you mentioned the fault lines in their friendship. I mean, Livy is kind of the central linchpin, wasn't she? She's yeah. the person who kept them all together. Yeah. And she's gone, but she's yeah. still keeping them all together, even from beyond the grave. Yeah, and I think if she was there, she'd kind of, she'd be like, you know, hang on, guys, you know, we, we, can, we are friends, but you have to kind of, like, live your life. And if that means maybe... You know, uh, loosening the, the the kind of ties, then you've got to you've got to do that. You know. I mean, in the, Eleanor was talking about having experienced the personal loss and that having you know given made her take stock of a particular point in her life and her mm-hmm. peer group. And the same thing happened to you. Sorry, who? who Eleanor who, was saying about having experienced yeah. the loss, and you. Yes. The same sort. The same thing happened yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't actually someone that I knew well, like Eleanor. It was actually a guy in my sixth form who I sort of knew and was a kind of a mate, but. He died, and like Eleanor said, it was just—it's just so—it's like not the natural order of things, and so shocking mm. that everything you sort of, you know, I was interested in this idea that everything you think should be isn't suddenly, and um, the kind of worst has happened, and it's almost like it's kind of a film, you know, you can't really believe it. And I went to his funeral, and I think that stayed definitely stayed with me, and I, and I was interested in untimely death and how that might affect 
the people left behind and how they live their lives. And there is a question mark over her death as well, which I, which we won't answer yes. here and now, but there is yes. a question mark as to, as to um, how exactly that happened. Yeah. Um, whereas Eleanor's book is more concerned about the relationship between two people, yours is much more about a group of people. Yeah. We met a lot of characters then. Yes. Um, is that Was that kind of your experience of being at university? Yeah, um, I think just pure luck. I kind of met um, my friends who I'm still friends with now. We all kind of met on the, say, on the corridor of halls and now we're still in touch. It's, and, and, you know, talking to people, that's quite a rare thing, I think, now. You know, I'm 38 now, so it was a long time ago. And um, so, yeah, but we've all changed and there's, people have dropped off and, you know, sort of uh, when life gets in the way, and you, you know, you're all kind of quite similar when you're at university and everyone's quite um, the same, really, because you haven't kind of emerged into yourself. And so I wanted to know what happened when they start to grow up and life happened to them. Are, are they still meant to be friends? And it's an interesting um, kind of, you know, you, you have these kind of life stages that the characters go through, I mean, jobs and things like that, but also stuff like, you know, they graduate from shopping at Asda to shopping at M&S, um, but they still shop in the same way. They still yeah. argue with each other yeah. in the aisles yeah, of the supermarkets. Yeah. And they don't still have the, much, I don't think. Yeah, no, mm. some things change and some things don't yeah. change at all. And Mia, the central character, um, her kind of main life experience is, is with Billy, who's a wee boy, and she's a, she's a single mum, and that did seem very personal again for you yeah. with your story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. Um, yes, I I I, uh, I I'm a single mum, and uh, I, uh, I I could definitely relate to kind of that um, uh, feeling of loneliness of being in a, in a flat on your own with a baby. Um, I obviously had to help my wonderful father of child but you know essentially I was living on my own with a with a baby and um you know it can be very isolating obviously she's grieving for her best friend and at the time when she needs her friend the most she hasn't got her and uh, she's kind of you know dealing with sleep deprivation and, and kind of going a bit mad um so yeah I kind of that came very easy actually that, all, <laughs> that, that, all that came very easy the, the sort of baby stuff uh, surprisingly easy actually I thought I might forget what one-year-olds do, but uh, I didn't. Which seems mainly to be cry. <laughs> mainly cry. Yeah. I take a lot of time to get in their snowsuits, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, but, yeah. But you are very careful to point out that that your your son, unlike the son in the book, has has not pooed in a paddling pool. He has not pooed in a paddling pool. No, I don't think he would actually forgive me if he thought I'd base that scene on him. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's interesting. That, I mean, for me, having gone to Lancaster University and reading about these these places, mm. I mean, it's just. It's that kind of tribal thing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and the idea that your friends become your family. Yeah. Um, and and the town feels like yours. You know, you feel like you own that city. You know, I think that's the line of that where, you know, it's your Lancaster and it's kind of your your group of friends, Lancaster. I went to Leeds, but I I'm from Lancaster, but very near it. So, mm. yeah, I liked that idea. Yeah, there's just a sort of sense like it's it's family, but family which also has its problems, right? Or every family has yeah. its problems. Yeah. So I, I was interested for Fraser, one of the central characters, in that he, you know, he he develops these friendships, but he loses his family, doesn't he? As well, at some point, there's a, yeah. you know, he has to tell us a bit about about that. Uh, for him. Well, Fraser, yeah, I mean, Fraser, uh, you know, comes from um, a sort of working class family in um, Bury, Bury near Manchester, um, and, you know, he's quite a close, uh, you know, as working-class families tend to be quite a lot, a very close family um, uh, with his mum and dad. And then when he goes to university, his mum feels like he's, he's, she's kind of lost him to his new family, which who are his friends. Mm. And, um, you know, to live, and, and Melody and Norman, Anna and Mia, and that they become his new family. Um, and then, of course, when Liv dies, uh, it's almost like he needs his mum again. And he's kind of got, you know, he's kind of that teenage self that you have, when you kind of go to university and 
you know, you sort of, um, you know, he, he, when he goes home to see his mum and dad, you know, he kind of tells them the bare minimum about his life. He doesn't really engage. He's a bit of a teenager, like a lot of people are. And then, you know, when, when he goes through this death um, and he's grieving, he kind of needs his mum again and yeah. develops a closer relationship with them. Which is what, kind of like the good thing, that one of the yeah, good things the that good comes thing. out of that loss. Sylvia, so questions? different ways of dealing with grief, particularly yeah. with yeah. Um, What did you find was the common thread in how people deal with their grief as you were writing about mm. Is there a common thread in how they, in how they deal with their grief, do you um, think, the friends? Well, no, because actually they sort of they actually deal with grief quite separately. They're almost like this group of friends who are all in their you know separate houses dealing with this on their own they don't really sort of until the end of the book really be honest about how they're dealing with grief so I think that's probably quite common that I mean obviously everyone deals with grief completely differently um but uh and I did sort of speak to grief counsellors and so on when I was researching it but actually I think it's just kind of instinctive you know that uh this kind of yeah this sadness but also a sense that you have to get kind of get on with it and get on with your life when maybe actually you're in bits inside um, but still having to kind of get on, and they they don't really lean on each other as much as they they could could have. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. There's a lot of kind of texting and a lot of talking, but there's mm. not that much no. honesty between them mm. until really. towards the end because everybody's so afraid of what they might reveal. What they might reveal. There's kind of there this, is something to be revealed. And there's there's guilt. There's guilt. You know, the, I think that's the common thread with um, with uh, untimely death. The kind of guilt. You know, survivor's guilt as well. So yeah, and guilt for other things. And, and Mia, Mia talks to um, Lev in the yeah. in the park. She kind of goes there, yeah. doesn't she? Williamson's says, Park. Yeah, Williamson's Park, which you said looks like a suburban Taj Mahal, which <laughs> is a lovely description of it. Hi. Yeah. Um, Hi. Hey. Hello. I um, really love the part you read out. I really oh, liked that. It had this ensemble feel. Yeah, I hope it wasn't too many characters to go. No, but, it yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah. How do you kind of balance all those sort of strands, as Kate was saying, between mm. this kind of love, love, love story, romance kind of plotline, and the relationships between yeah. the friends? I mean, there kind of is a love story as well. Uh, within it but I, I hope I kind of wanted it to come secondary really to it does the friendship thing yeah. um, and I suppose I was exploring like I was saying the, those themes of how you know first love and thinking it's it forever and how you know that can change and you know obviously the person you are at 20 and who you fall in love with at 20 is not the person you might fall in love with at 30 um, but I mean I, I actually didn't feel that much pressure from you know agent or, or publisher to write a kind of um, stereotypical chiclet or romantic comedy um, they kind of yeah they kind of were were open to it so that was that was really good and I really enjoyed not yeah. being not being kind of stuck in that genre are you working on another novel now? Yes. Already? It's really dark, yeah. It's really, well, it's really dark. You, the darkness is The like, darkness, the darkness is descending. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? A little bit? Ooh, about okay. How far along are you with it? Uh, oh, not anywhere near as far as I should be. But um, That's a common theme with all novelists. Yeah. The novelists in the room are going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to say too much, but um, it's 
it's kind of, about, I guess it's about one woman. It's a very, it, whilst this is about a group, that my new book is very much on one central character and basically she is a psychiatric nurse and she unravels herself um, and she develops post-traumatic stress disorder. I told you it was dark. <laughs> She's quite a funny person as well. Um, <laughs> as she develops... Joe post- Brand was a man. I always <laughs> remember those. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so in, a, in, a, um, some, in letters that go back anti-chronologically to who I won't reveal who they're to, you learn about the thing that's led to this kind of breakdown in a way. And so, yeah, it's, it's quite dark. But it's Very also dark. a love story as well. Can I just ask you what the... We have... We have the list in here. What is there anything? Have you ever written a list like that? Is there? I'm not. No, I write lists like kind of everyday lists. You know, like um, you know, I, I'm definitely one for adding things to the list. So I look like I've done loads of stuff. <laughs> um, but no, no, because I don't know. I find it hard enough to sort of, uh, you know, write a book, look after a child. I can't be going to Vegas as well. I can't fit it all in. <laughs> all right. Okay. This seems like um, a really good place to leave it. So I want to say thank you to Eleanor Moran and to Katie Regan and to Auburn and Wells for hosting us and to Lisa and the store staff and to all of you for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you.